Hello, and welcome to Not a Buffalo, the show where we discuss the science and technology that will save the world. My name is Jack, and I'm still not the worst candidate in the Conservative leadership debate. With me is Ben. He's unretractable and very redactable. Ben, how are you? I'm very well, Jack. Thank you. How are you? Ah, I'm okay. Another I, another improv intro. I think I think nothing went wrong, right? No, but I'm slightly hurt. I, I spent hours agonising over that intro that I wrote for you. Well, hours. hours. Ma- hours. Maybe four seconds, but still. Yeah. It's... <laughs> One man's second is another man's hour. That's very true. So, do you have some exciting stories to share with I, us today? I do, and I promise that most of them are... I actually have a combination of stuff that will save the world and stuff that is really interesting. But I really wanted to mention this one first. So, do you know about the new Godzilla film that got released a couple of weeks ago? There is no way this is related to science. <laughs> oh, oh no it is. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> okay. I didn't know there was a new Godzilla film. How is it related to science? Well, it turns out that some researchers have been looking into Godzilla. So he's been around since 1954 in, in a film. Uh, and that's 35 films in 65 years that they've been looking at. And what they've discovered is that Godzilla has been evolving in response to a spike in humanity's collective anxiety. So their their research tells us that we're more anxious now than we were in the 50s. Yes. I, and I the... don't think that was worth doing a research project to prove. <laughs> Well, the measure that they've used is US military spending. So there's a direct correlation, well, there's a strong correlation, sorry, between uh, US military spending and Godzilla's body size. So he started off at... (laughs) at, He started off at 50 (laughs) metres tall back in the 50s and grew and is now, in the latest film, he's 119.8 metres tall, which is really specific. I didn't think they'd release the specific height, but apparently maybe it's in the film... But what this means is that Godzilla is evolving 30 times faster than any other organism on Earth. Apart from US military spending. <laughs> Apart from US military spending, Which I suppose isn't, yeah. isn't an organism. But uh, the, the thing I love, I, I love how rich a backstory... I mean, 35 films, you kind of imagine there would be a very rich backstory. But It's uh, a lot, isn't it? Yeah. It's thir- 35 films over f- 65 years is... Uh, I don't think there's any other franchise that's lasted that long. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there probably is, but... Um, How about The Archers? The, the Archers has, but that's not a cultural phenomenon. I think that's just... Really? How many people outside of the UK know about The Archers? I, To be brutally honest, I don't know if anyone inside the UK knows now that we've left. Like, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> I think we might have been the last ones. No, there was... I, I was actually... It came up in a podcast I was listening to not too long ago. And one of the people there, one of the actors on it, held the record. I think he's just quit, or he's just retired, or maybe even died. But he's uh, he held the record. He'd been on the show for like sixty-five years or something insane. And wow, uh, it was the longest-running actor of any TV uh, or radio show. Radio show. Yeah, ju- yeah, just radio show. I, th- I think it was just radio show. We're going to have to keep this podcast going a long time to top that, aren't we? We we really are. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, back back to the Godzilla. So uh, I love this line. It says, if one accepts that Godzilla is a ceratosaurid dinosaur from the Jurassic period, as is argued in the film series. (laughs) uh, And they said, basically, 
He didn't oh. evolve for 145 million years, and then suddenly it hit 1954, and then he started to double in size. And uh, and so this maybe this is all the radiation in the air since uh, since the invention of the atom bomb. But yeah, it just uh, military spending has correlated with a, a massive rise in in the size of Godzilla. Who who on earth funded this study? Dartmouth College in the US are the ones who did it. Dartmouth scientists, um, and they published their findings in Science, <laughs> which is a fairly reputable what? journal, I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's like the journal Nature. Like, <laughs> yeah, that. Wow, so, how so, did that make it into the journal Science? What? What? <laughs> what happened this week? <laughs> Godzilla got released. I like that wow. they decided to correlate it with military spending as opposed to Hollywood budgets. But there you go. I'd love to. I'd love to see the data on Hollywood budgets versus military spending. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine again, there's probably a fairly strong correlation there. It's not going to save the world, but I think that's a fairly interesting story and a fairly poignant look at humanity. Yeah, I. It definitely says something about our collective unconscious, doesn't it? It does absolutely. Which is vaguely linked to my next story, um, because. This has its own origin myth um, in the collective unconsciousness of uh, the British public. It's the return of Boaty McBoatface. No, really? Yeah. She's back? Oh, yeah. She's back, and she's back with style. You may remember that when Boaty McBoatface... We should probably do a quick Boaty McBoatface primer for anyone listening. <laughs> I, I think we should, just so that people know um, who Boaty McBoatface is, just so, if, uh, if you've forgotten about it or, or, or missed it the first time around. Yeah, or you weren't part of that very specific group of English people who all voted on it. So basically, the UK commissioned a, <laughs> a, <laughs> the UK commissioned a science vessel, um, and this being the early 21st century, that new science vessel... Is seen as an opportunity to get a little bit of outreach going on. Um, the UK body which is commissioning it goes, we'd like to have the public name this boat. And of course, of the various names suggested, the one that polled the highest was Boaty McBoatface. So that came top by quite some margin. And then maybe Sciences Minister, I forget what he was back then, but Joe Johnson, who recently resigned over the incident which is gripping the uk at the moment and has been for the last three years um that's a nice way of putting it yeah the the collective psychodrama that is happening yeah there um uh he suggested that the boat should be named something more shootable and so it was named the david attenborough which i think we can all agree is a fundamentally disappointing thing that a boat can be called after boating with boat faces floated didn't david attenborough say we should call it that Boaty McBoatface. That he, he did. He was flattered, but he's like, yeah. <laughs> As did everybody else, because it's it's objectively a great name. And somebody must have agreed with the, with the public who was actually involved in the project, because in although the David Attenborough is the name of the ship, Boaty McBoatface was chosen as the name for one of its launchable submersible vehicles. And as of today, Boaty McBoatface has come back with its first piece of solid scientific research, which is about climate change in the oceans. So it, it's a little submersible that goes down to the deep oceans, and uh, they're doing some measurements on how climate change is affecting uh, sea temperature down there, and particularly to do with the mixing 
of different temperatures of seawater and how that's affecting salinity, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so that is the return of Boaty McBoatface. That's fascinating. So what's the research going to help? Is it just helping them uh, learn about the effects or is it potentially leading to a way of combating climate change and, and reducing acidity and uh, in the ocean, acidification in the oceans and things like that? Uh, from what I read, it's really just assessing how bad the damage is at the moment. Okay. This also comes in the same week when the um, Antarctic has levels of sea ice which were predicted to start appearing in 70 years, not this week. Um, so things are things are spiralling out of control pretty rapidly um, on the climate change front. Yeah, it's not, not a great week for climate change. Um, not really been a great century for it either. No. No, I, I think The Guardian has now updated their style guide to say you can't use climate change anymore. You have to say climate disaster or climate impact or uh, something like that. You have to use stronger language, basically, than mm. climate change. It, it's, I think climate apocalypse is probably where I fall on it. Um, yeah. Although I'm, I'm vague. I'm actually more optimistic now than I was, say, five years ago. Well, speaking of optimism... And speaking of mm. climate change, I do have a story uh, about the the plastics, which are also obviously contributing to the destruction of the environment. And... It's a happy week on the podcast. <laughs> oh no, this is this is great because do you know what's a better use uh-huh. for plastic than sending it to uh, to landfill? Uh, pogo stick, jet fuel. Oh, awesome! I, yep. Hang on, clean burning jet fuel. No. No, so it is. <laughs> it's not clean burning jet fuel, but basically, okay. a research group led by Washington State University scientists have found a way to turn daily plastic waste products into jet fuel. And uh, so, what they basically did is they can take anything from water bottles, milk bottles, plastic bags, including plastic shopping bags, they grind mm. them down and then they put them on top of activated carbon in a tube reactor. Uh, heated up to about 430 to 571 degrees Celsius. And that then the carbon acts as a catalyst and it enables it huh. to be turned into jet fuel. So it's kind of a, a little bit of a double whammy. So you use up the, the waste plastic and stop it going into the environment. And also yeah. you are providing an alternative form of jet fuel that's not fossil fuels. And I don't think it's clean burning, but by the fact that you're recycling plastic and you don't need as much in yeah. theory if this became commercial you wouldn't need as much kerosene and things like that to turn into jet fuel then yeah it's it's again maybe a small thing but it will mm. hopefully help uh they they pointed out that if they did make this commercially viable there's 26 million tons of plastic that the usa yeah. produced alone in 2015 so there's plenty of uh, raw yeah. materials that they could turn into jet fuel but i just Which thought china was, uh... isn't accepting anymore either so they need to yes. do something with it yeah <laughs> Yeah. And I think soft plastics, like plastic shopping bags and things, one of the big problems with them is they're not mm. easy to recycle at all, do they? Because they just kind of melt and stick to things and they get easily stained and you just end up having to throw them all away a lot of the time anyway. Mm. So uh, is it is this scalable yet? Or is this still just a sort of experimental result? Yeah, it could work on a large facility. It could even work on farms. So if farmers are throwing away plastic, they say here. Um, so yeah, it is. Oh, it is easily scalable. They do actually say that in the article. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't. They hadn't talked about how it was scalable, but they do say it is easily scalable. Oh, that's terrific. That's really yeah. good. And it's one of those stories that you know. It's this is the kind of story I like when we talk about because hopefully it just gets out there and gets a little bit more known, and you know, there's something we can we can do about it. And yeah, and we're sort of contributing. 
Sort of contributing. Exactly. Sort of contributing. That's a, it's my favourite kind of contributing. Yeah. But uh, have you seen any other stories about... I've actually seen a number of stories um, about tackling the plastic problem. There's another one, I won't go into it um, here, mm. but about a, a student from the University of Sussex has found a way to create bioplastic. Is it a full... Like, is it fully a bioplastic? Because the the definition of bioplastic varies massively from country to country. Yeah, as I understand it, it's the ingredients are fish skin and scales and red algae. Uh, and I know we have Legit. a problem with overfishing, so that's probably still not a, uh, not a complete solution, <laughs> but definitely a better solution. Yeah, it's it'll be it'll be all fun and games until the fish run out, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, so yeah, that this was is my, such a uh... cheery day. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I've got I've got some more stories, but it's uh, it's your turn. So what, what's your second story? So my my second story is related to. I can't segue. This is what I'm learning from this podcast. I cannot segue. Uh, my my story is related to being on fire because hay fever is kind of like being on fire. That's my that's my segue. That's all I have. So okay. <laughs> so um, the common I think over the counter in the UK drug, loratadine, uh, which is a hay fever medicine. Don't ask me how we either found this out or how we, how we managed to miss it for so long. But if that's introduced to an antibiotic-resistant bacteria in a lab, it becomes vulnerable to antibiotics again. Really? Yeah, right? I just came across this one article in the uh, Chemical and Engineering News. But yeah, it seems that it uh, breaks down the biofilm around them, which is a thin film which has biological elements in it, which somehow contributes to uh, these bacteria being antibiotic resistant. I don't really understand that element of it because I'm not a biologist. There's a possibility that it might be usable to treat particularly catheter infections, which are a a really big problem um, for antibiotic resistant infections. That's incredible, because that was one of the things that was going to... I've just realised I can still see your screen, by the way. Oh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, but yeah. yeah, that's incredible. That was one of the things that, you know, it's one of those things that's like the apocalyptic scenarios, that are the top five things that are going to kill or destroy humanity over the next few years. Yeah. Uh, Superbugs and antibiotic-resistant uh, infections and things were... Uh, pretty up there so having something that could combat that that we already have existing rather than trying to create new antibiotics which i know pharmaceutical companies aren't incentivized to do very much is Mm. fantastic news that's really really good yeah i was kind of blown away by it It was um it was one of my friends actually who told me about it like i didn't pick this up by myself (laughs) but they uh they pointed me in the direction of the article i was like really oh okay wow okay (laughs) why and and i couldn't find any other news source talking about it that was the really surprising thing is that this is this is such a good news story right <laughs> absolutely that's that's fantastic news i mean that just sounds like it would make yeah making making medicine better making uh mm. anti bio antibiotics better all that good stuff yeah. and do you know what else makes stuff better jack shooting them with lasers Th- them can we define them a bit more tightly <laughs> so the, the the headline I've got in front of me is literally is sorry I quote the secret to making stuff better shoot it with a laser. Wow. And I, wow. I think may I think mainly they're talking <laughs> about electronics. I will admit, but they do just in the 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 headline just says stuff. Okay, that's yeah, legit legit delivery. Um, 
Shoot it with a laser. What kind of electronics? Well, the examples they use are faster computers, more efficient solar panels, more powerful electric cars. But uh, what, what, what? I'll just to kind of give you the context here, which probably be helpful. Yeah. Um. So it's Northeastern University, and they are basically using lasers to change the electrical and magnetic properties of materials that are used to create circuits. So, for example, they can take something like silicon or gallium arsenide, uh, which we mm. use in smartphones, and then they can change the way they, they work. They can change their electrical and magnetic properties by shooting them in a specific way with a laser. And it will allow you know electrical engineers to create better sensors potentially faster chips potentially smaller chips that can that can do more uh once so what are they ionizing the the molecules or are they deionizing them or something like that the article basically says that it shifts the materials into new states so i don't know it doesn't actually mention oh okay that's diff that's not what i was expecting yeah so they say that when the pulse of light from the laser moves through the material it Mm. changes the properties of the material in a very dramatic way but it doesn't go into much more depth than that i believe the research was published and uh, i might have to go and have a look look that up um, but it was from uh, dr F- gregory fite fite f-i-e-t-e uh, who's a prof- physics professor at northeastern and his doctoral student michael vogel i apologize if i've gotten those two names wrong but uh, I just love the idea that they were kind of sat around one day and they were trying to make their computer go faster. And they was like, let's try shooting it with a laser. Like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> Do you want to know something funny about the name Vogel? Go on. Is It means, if you say in German, du hast ein Vogel, literally it means you have a bird. In idiomatic terms, it means you're talking nonsense. <laughs> you have a bird means you're talking nonsense. That's interesting. That idioms have... idioms get weird. Like, the... Yes. <laughs> And now everyone who listens will be using it all the time. All five. All, all five. All five. No, we have five million listeners now. You've got to make us sound better than we are, Jack. <laughs> Do you want me to cut that one out? Maybe we should, yeah. As... <laughs> we really didn't go on many tangents. I just kind of jumped in when I saw the hmm. segue opportunities. So... You know, your <laughs> your story actually it reminded me of something I was reading the other day, which was about um, it was about Lisa Meitner, who was a physicist in the early twentieth century. Uh, she was working with a, a bloke called Han. This is all sort of like context to the the fun thing they were actually doing, which is they were racing to fill out the periodic table, and of course, you know, like a lot of the elements further up the pit the, in the periodic table, they're not naturally occurring, or they naturally occur in like trace amounts. Um, on the earth and so the way they were going we'll fill these gaps is they were getting massive chunks of things like uranium and just firing tons of neutron radiation at them in the hope that some of the neutrons would stick to the uranium and create new elements wow and did it work yeah legitimate it legitimately worked um it, <laughs> it's actually the beginning of the story of the atomic bomb or a period in the development of the atomic bomb because this is actually the story of how how fission was um, first observed because uh, while it was creating a new um, element it was also losing some mass so they were like oh right so this is what's happening on a chemical level is it's it's separating this uranium is is losing some of its ions to something else that's that's the fun story of how the atomic bomb um, didn't quite fall into the hands of uh, German researchers 
in the wow. 1930s. I love that so much of science is just, I wonder what will happen if I do this. Yeah, there's a surprisingly high element of that, isn't there? I think it just goes to show children, do do things safely, but don't let people quash your curiosity. Always be trying things. You never know what might happen, but do I'm it safely. I'm not sure they were being that safe when they were doing this. Yeah, probably not. Have you ever heard the story of how the Jet Propulsion Lab got started? No, no, I haven't. It's brilliant. I actually, again, I, I listen to so many podcasts, but I heard a podcast mm. on it as well. But it was basically, I think it was three guys just blowing stuff up in the desert and trying to, and then trying to figure out ways to build better missiles and things to sell to uh, the US government. And they, like, one of them was obsessed with, with planes and the other was obsessed with explosives. And they just kind of got together and started they somehow managed to convince the US military to give them some money and then they just used it to blow stuff up in the desert and eventually developed quite a lot of really incredible breakthroughs and then obviously it became the Jet Propulsion mm. Lab and was eventually became a part of NASA and you know helped people get to the moon but yeah it started off just a couple of guys who probably should not have been allowed scissors let alone explosives just blowing stuff up in the desert yeah because one of them was um was a thelemite occultist wasn't he yes like, this is Jack Parsons, the rocket scientist and cult person. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was big into his cults. He, uh, I, I think he used to, they say he used to um, throw parties and his neighbors complained because he'd, he'd have them go on until really late and he'd be really loud. And yeah, very unusual guy. Yeah. Why do I know who he is? I, I'm sure there's a reason why I've, I've, like he, read he his was Wikipedia a scientist. He's a famous scientist. Uh, yeah, I guess. I've not I've not read all scientists' Wikipedias though. Like <laughs> I do other things in my lunch break. Yeah, but I, I feel if you if you know about science and you know it just it just comes up or if you, if you follow you know, I know I, I think I probably know about a lot of science things just because it happens to come up on my Facebook feed because you know, you speak mm. to people or you follow things or you like things that are science related and, and they pop up and stuff on yeah twitter and oh just it, it all pops up somewhere that's a great visual metaphor for what happens on the internet when someone tries to suppress knowledge <laughs> oh it'll pop up somewhere else you just push it down it pop- i'm imagining you know that episode of the simpsons where they have like a golf course and they build it over trash <laughs> yeah and that's that, that's what i'm imagining but where all of the bubbles are jack parsons a random white guy scientist's head i've now just got a vision of that simpsons episode but with a random person's head popping up through the golf course that's really weird image yeah, yeah. that's exactly what I'm, i like that you're imagining this exactly the same as i'm imagining it that's nice <laughs> that's lovely but mm. uh do you have any other any other stories or anything else that uh you've come across no, that was that was all my that was all the good news i have but speak well speak of things that pop up everywhere hmm I heard about mantis shrimp a few years ago, and now I keep seeming to get stories about them popping up. Right, I, 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 it's one of those. I know there's actual name for the phenomena, but it's, you know how it's once you know about something, you suddenly start to notice it. So I've had, uh, yeah. I've had a few stories about them pop up over the years, and I've had another one recently. Do you know about mantis shrimp? Are they the ones that can see in like a crazy number of colours and spec and a much broader spectrum, and have like extra cones in their eyes and stuff like that? Yeah. So humans possess three types of photoreceptor cells whereas Mm. mantis shrimps possess between 12 and 16 types so 
they can also tune the sensitivity of their long wavelength color vision to adapt to their environment. So they can see in, like we can see the visible light spectrum, hence we call it the visible mm. light spectrum, but they can see, I think, into infrared and into ultraviolet and, you know, just, I, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but humans can see something like, four million colors or something like that and mantis shrimp can see something like 150 million uh, i don't have those numbers right i don't have them in front of me I will, i'll try and uh, find them I, I mean they're not just incredible eyes they can also punch so fast that they can boil the water around them when they punch and uh, what they've recently discovered and, and hence the new story coming up is that the mantis shrimp uh, have been around for about 400 million years and mm. they like to fight each other uh, hence, hence they have these incredibly powerful punches but obviously in, in response to that they've also evolved incredibly powerful shields so their uh their scales their exoskeleton sorry um is uh they they have a they have a specialized shield in their exoskeleton in their tail segment called a telson mm. which they can use to basically they swing it up and they can use it to block the blows and it's now inspiring a new class of lightweight, impact-resistant materials for helmets and cars and everything. Because they, they just have this really light tail, but it yeah. can block block something that's basically a bullet uh, in in water. And, you know, this hap- the bullet happens at obviously very short range because it's just a little shrimp punching you. Well, punching mm. the other shrimp. Uh, so they found a helicoidal structure within this specialized shield that prevents cracks from growing and uh, basically dissipates the energy or most of the energy from strikes. So it's uh, helicoidal is is a spiral essentially. It's a similar mm. root word to a helicopter, and it's a they describe it as a twisted plywood like structure, but uh, and it's the similar kind of thing that they found in the um, in the the club claw that the uh, mantis shrimp uses to crack open clamshells and to not suffer fools gladly they sound really dangerous like mantis shrimp sound a lot more dangerous than i remember them being when i first read about them yeah you definitely even if you go up to one in captivity you definitely wouldn't want to go near it because i think they are very aggressive as well they they know they can punch very hard and they like to try it out but it is a good news story because this could yeah. make uh, cars much safer. It could make potentially better body armor for soldiers and for police. And it could make mm. um, lighter and stronger airplanes and uh, and things like that as well. So yeah. uh, it, it, I love it when we f- we, we're we trying to think of something, trying to solve a solution when we found out that nature already did it way better and just did it naturally. Yeah. So yeah, that was my, my last story. So we've had from... Uh, do you know what this is i'd just like to conclude by saying i'd hmm. love to see a fight between a giant manta shrimp and godzilla and godzilla yes yes that <laughs> my money would actually be on the manta shrimp i know godzilla is meant to be king of the monsters but then manta shrimp sounds lethal i mean if you scaled up a manta shrimp to the size of godzilla even old godzilla, you would have a much better movie that yeah and that punch <laughs> would probably be able to like level a city from the shockwave alone oh, this is such a good idea why why are we doing a podcast? Why are we? Why are we not making Mantis Shrimp the movie? Okay, yeah, that that is our idea. Copyrighted TM. I'm going to look up the director for Godzilla right now and uh, send him a message and say we've got a great idea for the sequel. I suppose maybe we should uh, maybe we should mention as well. Um, we are moving not a buffalo to a monthly uh, schedule, whereas we were doing it every two weeks. Yeah, and I think we want to make sure we have enough time to edit it well and also to maybe do a little bit more time doing the research and ensuring that we don't make any uh, mistakes and that we are able to answer each other's Mm -hmm. questions fully, which we definitely did in this episode and definitely haven't cut out all the bits where we didn't know what we were talking about and had to Google it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, that's why it's a 40-minute podcast. We're going to have to cut that out, aren't we? No, I, I think that bit's <laughs> fine. Just... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we had made any mistakes and had to Google it or redo things, then we probably would cut those bits out. But ah, obviously we haven't. Yeah. But magic of editing, you listeners magic. will never know. Yeah. Unretractable, but very redactable. That's not a buffalo. Thank you very much for listening. Please subscribe to the show to never miss an episode and please rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. If you'd like to get in touch, we are Not A Buffalo Pod on Twitter, Not A Buffalo Podcast on Facebook, and you can contact us through our website, notabuffalo.wordpress.com. We put every episode, every episode up on there and you can also find us uh, on all your favourite podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, etc. Thanks very much and take care.